This time we will dismiss our children from uh, pre-K through third grade for Children's Church. You can follow my lovely wife, Laura, and others. Um, and, uh, and make sure you go get your kids after worship. It's always, it's always good. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. If you have to look at your table of contents, there's no shame. So tomorrow we will be giving thanks to God for our freedom as Americans and the freedom that is pretty much unparalleled um, that we get to enjoy as American citizens. And the reason we're so thankful for that, but also sobered by that, is that it took many, many sacrifices for us to be free. You know, you can probably see where I'm going with this, right? It took sacrifice for us to be free. Yes, those who gave their lives themselves for our freedom to preserve and protect it, but also those who gave up time with their families that they'll never get back. As I prepare to go uh, on our mission trip, I'm going to Uganda, but then I'm going to Ethiopia after that, and I'll be gone almost three weeks. And those of you who are in the military who've been deployed are like, yeah, you know? But my dad was gone for seven months on a ship on the USS Iwo Jima as a, Iwo Jima as a naval doctor. And it's really hard on families. Um, I haven't yet had to be the one who leaves, but I've been the one who has left, and it's really hard. And so I want us to think about that as we uh, look at our text. But as, before we look at this, I want to, in light of the, the sacrifices that people in the military make, I want to share with you uh, about my friend Luke Heibel. Some of you may know him. He's the one who knew Joel, who helped me get to come here. So I'm thankful for him in many ways. Um, but he's going to go to England and, and uh, present a paper that he wrote. He's an army chaplain. He's in Germany. And this is a paper about helping chaplains minister in, in an age in which the spiritual realm is contested. And he's drawing on the work. I'm not going to get too intellectual, don't worry. Uh, well, maybe you're more intellectual than I am, so you're not worried. But uh, <laughs> there's a guy named Charles Taylor who wrote this really long book called The Secular Age. And what it's about is that through different philosophies, we in our era think in very different ways than most people you know, 500 years ago thought. And that is most people view reality as only within what's called the imminent frame, that which is physical here and now. And any idea of like a transcendent reality that's beyond the physical here and now, it's like maybe that's a thing possibly, but there's no way that you could ever know for sure about that. Does that sound familiar? Your professors probably think that. You know, your coworkers may think that. Um, that is what's in the water and in the air. And, and people buy into something called exclusive humanism, which means that you know, this life is all there is. And so you can imagine being a chaplain trying to give hope to soldiers and counsel them and comfort them, knowing there's lots of different religions out there, there's lots of different ideas, and you're trying to be sensitive to soldiers based on what they believe and where they're at. You don't want to like force things on them, right? But your call is to try to give hope and to try to remind them of what's meaningful, that there are things that are transcendent such that 
that it would be worth it to give their lives for our country. And this shift in worldview where there's no, nothing transcendent, there's nothing, more, nothing bigger or more meaningful that gives meaning to our lives really undermines that. And it undermines that for Christians as well because even though we believe in the Lord, it's still in the water we drink and still in the air we breathe and it challenges our faith. And so Luke and I were talking about this that as chaplains, he's calling them to go back to their roots and to trust that the thing unique that they have to offer versus some of the other people that help soldiers through psychology and things like that is we have the transcendent perspective. We know God. And in order to have really legitimate, justified hope, and even hope beyond the grave and a sense of meaning and purpose to your life, you have to have revelation from the transcendent. You have to have true words about reality from the outside and from above. You need God's Word. You need revelation that's true and good news in order to have real hope. Otherwise, you're just pretending and playing make-believe. And so what... what Luke is hopefully going, I think, going to encourage the chaplains and challenge them about is don't lose the, transcend, the transcendent, even as you're pastoring people who don't believe yet, that you have true hope to offer through the Word of God. I don't know if they still do, but the military used to issue like military Bibles, New Testaments, right? With the Psalms in the back, through the Gideons and stuff, right? Why? Because This is transcendent truth that's good news that gives us hope and and hope even beyond the grave. And so what I want us to see this morning as we read this passage from Hebrews, you know, we've been doing this summer series called the Summer of Hope. And in each of these messages, uh, if you distill them, what what you've heard is our hope comes from God's word about God's work. God's word that is trustworthy about God's work. Past, present, and future in Jesus Christ. Jesus promised, Jesus having come, died, rose again, and Jesus returning. That's our only hope that's legitimate. Everything else is just kidding ourselves. And so I want you to see the writer to the Hebrews calling these Hebrew Christians who are tempted to go back to the Old Testament system, even though Jesus already fulfilled it, tempted to go back to that to avoid persecution by by the Jews that didn't believe in Christ yet, who were persecuting them. He is reminding them of God's word, his promise, and about God's work. And that's where where he's calling them to have hope. But as he does that, he focuses on what? On Jesus, the word of God, who came to do the work of God in his earthly ministry, life, death, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven. So we're going to find our hope in the book of Hebrews this morning, and we'll see that Jesus himself is our hope because he's our promised high priest, he's our perfect high priest, and he's our permanent high priest. So let's dig into God's word. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Actually, verses, yeah. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself 
saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would You please renew our hope in Jesus Christ. Father, thank You that reality is good news for all who believe in the Lord Jesus. We thank You that love came down and rescued us. We pray for any who have not embraced and discovered the hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone, that you would make them born again to that new and living hope, even today through the preaching of your word, that by your spirit you would call men and women and boys and girls from spiritual death to new life, to a hope and a future in the person and work of King Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You'd fill me with Your Spirit in a special way. Give me that faith and very hope that I proclaim through Your Word. And open all of our hearts to receive Your love for us in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is our hope. He's our everlasting hope. Because He is our promised Perfect and permanent high priest. Can you guess what my three points are? I'm just, can you guess? The first one is Jesus our, is our promised priest. The second is Jesus is our perfect priest. And the third is He's our permanent priest. And you're like, priest, 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 priest. I don't know. I had a priest when I was younger. I don't know. What, I, what does that mean? What's, we'll get into it. Okay, hang in there. Now to be fair to myself and to give a little warning, this, is, this stuff from the book of Hebrews is the stuff that the writer was like, alright y'all, you should be getting away from the milk of the Word. We're going PhD level stuff here, so put your thinking caps on. right? He gets to this Melchizedek stuff. and I mean, if I could, I would just read the whole letter to the Hebrews to you, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but this, uh, this is, some of this is difficult, but the difficulty, it's like... Uh, Anything that's really, really wonderful, sometimes it, it takes suffering and, and perseverance and difficulty to get to the good stuff. So um, hang in there, dig deep with me, because the journey is worth it. All right? So let's look back at what the writer says about Jesus being our promised priest. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we look back. Look back at um, verse 13. The writer says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, 
Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, let's look back at that promise together at uh, Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18. Hold your thumb in Hebrews and walk with me back to God's promise to Abraham after he had offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice and then the angel of the Lord intervened and protected him from offering, from sacrificing his son. God then reiterates the very promise that he had made earlier to Abraham. Genesis 22, 15-18 says this, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I surely will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, or the word is also translated seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The New Testament applies this in your offspring, in your seed, all the nations. And elsewhere it says all the families of the earth will be blessed ultimately to Jesus Christ Himself personally. That in your seed, Jesus, all the world would be blessed. That salvation would come to a number more than a man can number from every tribe and tongue. So going back to Hebrews, when, when the writer to the Hebrews reminds these familiar with the Old Testament Christians about God's promise to Abraham, it's not as explicit in, in what he says when he says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. But we know looking back, he was, you know, that was like a sample, and they knew the, the fullness of that promise was to send the seed, which is the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head through having his own heel bruised at the cross. There, this promise to bless Abraham and multiply him had in it the seed of the gospel itself of Jesus. And then he becomes more explicit about this when he talks about the high priest himself, when he gets into the specifics about Jesus coming to save the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. He'll, I'll read the stuff more specifically about the priest in a second, but I want us to see how the, writers, the writer to the Hebrews connects the work of Jesus explicitly with rescuing the, the, the children of Abraham, all who trust in the Lord Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, you may be going, man, he's whipping us around a lot. That's why in your bulletin it says selections from Hebrews. That was pretty clever, right? I gave myself some leeway, all right? So again, you're strapped into the roller coaster. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, Jesus had to become incarnate so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that means wrath-bearing sacrifice, for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So they've already, when we're in chapter 6, they've already heard the, the promise to send Jesus, the high priest, connected with God's promise to Abraham that he's referring to in our passage, Hebrews 6. That's the content of this. And notice how God wants us to have hope through his promise. He says that later on that he emphasizes you know, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God cares about our experiencing our hope in our daily lives. It's so important. Our hope in Jesus is the heart and the fuel of the Christian life, knowing God's love for us through faith in Jesus. So he then gets more specifically about the promise when he quotes later Psalm 10, verse 4. And I'm just going to read that to you. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 110, verse 4. It's like the, one of the most in-your-face psalms about Jesus that's quoted so much in the New Testament. It says this, verse 4, The Lord has sworn... Hear that again? He swore to Abraham, right? By myself I have sworn, because you've done this, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you, right? He took an oath, which the writer of the Hebrews makes a huge deal of. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind you, that is to Jesus prophetically, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see the promise to Abraham that the writer of the Hebrews is reminding us of containing the promise to send Jesus as this different kind of high priest. Not after the Levitical order of priests. Not a descendant of Aaron, but from a different line. We'll get into that in more detail in a little bit. But what I want you to see as we've looked at this thing is that this promise to Abraham that the writer of the Hebrews is emphasizing in chapter 6, uh, verse 13, is the promise to send Jesus, the permanent, perfect high priest. And that he is our hope as our high priest. Okay, So he's the promised priest. Again, God cares deeply about our hope. He wants us to have assurance about His plan to bless the whole world and of our part in this plan as His children adopted through faith in Jesus. He wants you to know your, your place with hope in the real kingdom of God. So Jesus was promised not just by a bare promise, but just as, as uh, the writer emphasized His promise to Abraham uh, that He took an oath, by Myself I've sworn, he took an oath about to, to specify this promise to send Jesus, the high priest, a different kind of high priest. And in this promise about being the, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek uh, is contained the promise that this priest would be a perfect priest. And that's in contrast to the sinful priests during the time of the Old Testament and even at work in the temple that I believe still stood while the writer to the Hebrews wrote this letter to these persecuted Christians. That they were doing this work as imperfect priests. One, because they sinned. And two, because they were going to die. And so their work was never done. It was typical. Elsewhere in the, in the letter, he starts talking about the way the temple is set up. you got the priests doing their stuff all year long. And then once a year, the high priest gets to go behind the veil that covers the ark 
uh, of the testimony of God's special presence. And he said, the, the picture of this is to show that the regular priesthood is not sufficient to atone for our sins. It's pointing to a high priest as, as a new and different way, as, a, as an accomplishing it. But even that high priest came back out of the veil and you know they didn't have the, the confidence that their sins had been atoned for past, present, and future. They were looking ahead to God's promise to send the true priest, Jesus. So I want to read to you uh, from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. If you get tired of flipping around, you know, just listen. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, he's talking about Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, meaning he is of a different class from sinners because he's the only one who's not a sinner. It doesn't mean he refused to hang out with sinners. We know from the rest of the Bible that's not what the writer means here. He hung out with sinners, but he was separated from them in his perfect holiness and obedience to God. It says, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, plural, right? But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that is that word in the Psalms to Jesus prophetically that I read to you, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He's our perfect priest. Elsewhere it says that Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings. It doesn't mean that Jesus sinned and then he learned to stop sinning, but the Bible talks about how even the sinless Son of God grew in wisdom and stature. That God was providing more and more tests. You know, you start trying to work out, you don't stick, you know, 200 pounds on each side of the bar and try to bench that. At least I don't. Maybe you do because you're a stud, but I don't. You work your way up to that. And there were various forms of suffering that God ordained and allowed in Jesus' life to build up His suffering power endurance as not only the, the divine Son of God, but as a true man, right? To build Him up to that point where He could endure the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before us that is us. And so He had been perfected through his sufferings, he was ready to take on the greatest sacrifice that anyone could ever make, taking the equivalent of hell for a number of people, uh, more than a man can number from every tribe and tongue. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. He is the perfect priest. And as our perfect priest, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And by perf- the word perfect means complete, right? The completed sacrifice. The sacrifice to end all other sacrifices to atone for our sins. I want to read that to you in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Remember, as a sinner who continues to sin and yet you trust in Jesus and hope in Jesus, you need to have your hope renewed often, right? We confess our sins every week and we hear these words of encouragement every week because we sin every week, right? And so we need constant encouragement and reminder 
of the hope that we have because of our perfect high priest and his perfect, completed, finished work on our behalf. We need to rest in his, in his it is finished. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. This is about our per- perfect priest and his perfect sacrifice. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down. Because it was finished, right? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I want to say that again. For by one single offering He's perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Right? You still sin because you are being made holy. In one sense, you're already holy and perfect in Christ. Right? He's already perfected you for all time. You are righteous in the sight of God. You are perfect in the sight of God through your union with Jesus by faith and being covered in His righteousness and His obedience, right? But it's once for all time, for sins forever, right? Those who are being made holy. He's perfected us forever. Do you believe that? When you come to confess your sins, are you able to confess your sins in hope? As, as Pastor Joel was saying, is it a relief of your burden or is it something that's so scary you can't dare to admit your sin? What frees us to be honest about our sin and to repent with hope to God as having already turned towards us in love even when we turn to Him is that we are perfect because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Amen? That gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope too. Let's keep reading. Verse 15 of chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, now he's, gonna, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 about the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Listen, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Years later, after this was written, God would, in His providence, through the Roman armies and the Jewish wars, destroy the temple. Because the remaining existence of the temple was a, no it isn't, to Jesus's, it is finished. We still need to keep offering these things, right? But there is no longer any true offering for sin because of how perfect and successful Jesus' offering is on our behalf. That is such good news. You can have hope because you have a high priest, not like the other high priests who sinned and died, but you have a high priest who's perfect, who offered the perfect sacrifice, and... He's also your permanent priest. Third point. I mean, we're going faster, sort of, probably in the normal, right? Permanent priest. He's our permanent priest who lives forever to intercede for us, to pray for us. So let's look at how he's mentioning back in chapter 6, Jesus to be our permanent priest. 
chapter 6, verse 20, says, Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest, what? Forever! <laughs> Forever! After the order of Melchizedek. He's our high priest forever. He died never to die again. It's impossible for Jesus to ever die again. Therefore, we have hope. He's our priest forever. Right? And so, let's look uh, more deeply at this whole Melchizedek thing. Okay, so, you're like, I'm getting hungry. Melchizedek. All right, hang in there. Melchizedek. All right? So, I'm going to read to you chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What in the world does the writer of the Hebrews mean by that? Well, when you read back in Genesis about Melchizedek and his blessing Abraham, the point is not that Melchizedek is eternal because only God is eternal. Mel Melchizedek was a real human man. But he is described in Genesis in a way that is very unique from how every other human being was described. Because every other human being, you, all those you know, genealogies, right? So-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. There was no mention of Melchizedek's parents. Another thing that was unique is everyone else was mentioned as having died, right? He lived this many years old, then he slept with his fathers, you know, then, then he died. Then, then, so in, then his son lived this many years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And there's no mention of Melchizedek's death. Why? Because God used Melchizedek and his life as a picture of the coming Christ who truly has no beginning as a divine Son of God. There was never a time when the Son of God was not and has no ultimate end in terms of after the resurrection. He lives forever. He will never die now. So this is a type or a picture of Jesus. That's why this order of Melchizedek is so important. Because the Levitical priest following the line of Aaron would die. But like Melchizedek was pictured to do, Jesus would live forever. And then chapter 7, verses 12 to 17. Remember, this is some meat of the Word. So you're, we're chewing our steak now. Right? You're like, okay, I'm getting whipped around. Chew your steak. It's worth it. It's awesome. It's good. Right? 12 to 17 of chapter 7. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, 
concerning bodily descent. It's not about your lineage. It's not about you being a descendant of the tribe of Levi. He says, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see this? They'd be like, how could, the unbelieving Jews might say to these Hebrew Christians, how can Jesus be your priest? He's not a descendant of Levi. He's from Judah. Get out of here. There's no way. You're talking nonsense. And the writer's saying, by Jesus rising from the dead and not being able to die anymore, he's demonstrated that he's a better priest because he's he's he was a live forever priest. He's a permanent priest. And then verses 23 to 25 of chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, what? Permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, sometimes I scratch my head like, what does it mean? Why is Jesus still praying for us if he already accomplished our salvation at the cross? Why is that? Well, we ask each other to pray for each other, right? It's not for your salvation, right? But praying, like Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you're restored, you know, go and be with the, with the disciples. Whatever he says, I can't remember, right? And notice, remember, Jesus doesn't pray that Peter would not fail, right? I've said this before. He prays that his faith would not fail because he knew Peter was going to fail. He was going to reject, he was going to renounce Jesus. The worst thing you can do. But he prayed that his faith would not fail and Jesus is praying the very same thing for you, that your faith would not fail, that you would not give up your hope, that you would not be deceived by the lies that the only thing that you can find hope from is your circumstances and that you have to do something to make things work out because God is not going to come through for you. We've got to do it ourselves, right? God, Jesus is praying that we will hold on to the simple, glorious, beautiful gospel from God's word about God's work, not our own. Amen? It's amazing. Now, we have, as in the PCA, our Presbyterian Church in America, we have these doctrinal standards that are not equal with Scripture at all, but ministers and ruling elders take vows that we believe that these statements of faith are correct interpretations of Scripture. All right? And so they're part of that part of that rich heritage that we have are these sets of questions and answers. Some of you have memorized those in childhood. There's the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I want to read to you some, yes, kind of old language, but really amazing, comforting stuff based on Scripture. And there's cross-references, and you can look those up later. I can show them to you. You look it up online. But, but this is, I believe, what the Scripture means when it says that Jesus... Lives, always lives to make intercession for us. The Westminster Larger Catechism 55 says this, How doth Christ make intercession for us? Okay, you ready? Christ makes intercession by His appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of His obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring His will to have it applied to all believers answering all accusations against them, 
and procuring for them, listen, this is what he wins for us through his intercession. Quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings. You know, Martin Luther would like confess 50 billion sins to his priests, you know, before he came to know the Lord. And the priest would be like, dude, chill out, man. Just like ask God for you. That's way too much. Like, you don't have to be OCD about remembering every last sin or whatever. Like, you, you can trust that God forgives you and you can have peace of conscience notwithstanding daily failing. Because it's like, I mean, I would be pulling over in traffic every two seconds confessing sins to God. Otherwise, how are you going to get to work? You know, you, Because Jesus is your high priest. And you can have peace of conscience even though you mess up every day. Is that good news to you? It's great news. He says, also, access with boldness to the throne of grace. We're going to read from Hebrews a little bit more about that. Access with boldness, not with shame. Do not come to God in shame. Jesus took your shame at the cross. Access with boldness to the throne of grace. And acceptance of their persons and services. Who you are and what you do for the Lord. Are you perfect? No, you're not perfect. God accepts you because of Jesus. What about your service to the Lord? Balzer, you ran a little bit longer again today. We've talked about this. Even your services are accepted by the Lord because of Jesus, your high priest. Your service isn't perfect, but Jesus is. And he's your high priest. And even your service is accepted. And God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He accepts your work. We have a hard time with our service. (laughs) And we feel like failures all the time. And God accepts your work and delights in it. Isn't that amazing? Not only does he accept you, but our little crayon drawings for Jesus. He's like, beautiful! (laughs) It's incredible! All right. Uh. So we, because Jesus has passed through the heavens and has entered behind the true heavenly veil, not the earthly one that got ripped at his crucifixion, but there is a, whatever it means for a heavenly sanctuary, Jesus is permanently in the most intimate place with God as your forerunner, because you're going to be there too, because of him. He's holding the table for you at this exclusive restaurant. You know? he's, he's sitting at the table, and you're, you have a place there, and you're going to be there eating with Jesus. All right, I want to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. He says, what do you do with all this? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so, since we have a, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. You know, being honest about who we are, right? A true heart and looking to God in truth of his word. A true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God's word, he swore an oath to about Jesus saving you. 
That chain is so steadfast bound to that promise. And that chain of hope goes from that steadfast point behind the veil with Jesus as an anchor to your soul, anchored in Jesus Christ Himself who is our hope. We get to enter the Holy of Holies because He has entered in our place. Our hope goes behind the veil because we are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit who is already there. Jesus is our hope. Please pray with me. King Jesus, we thank You for being our priest and we thank You for being our hope. Oh Lord, would You help us to get more deeply into Your Word this week. And oh Lord, would You help us to bask in the beauty of Your promises of what You would do in Jesus and and of Your declarations of what Jesus has done for us. That it is finished. There's been a finished sacrifice. But also that Jesus is our forerunner who's coming back for us. That we will be with Him to see His glory as He prayed for in John 17. Lord, we pray that You would stir up our hope for Christ's return. Stir us our hope to be with You at the resurrection, body and soul, in intimate fellowship with You forever and with one another because of Jesus Christ, our hope. We pray in His name. Amen.